to the book of 2 Kings chapter 17. 2 Kings chapter 17. We have just a few more sermons left in these marvelous stories of the kings of Israel. And today we turn back to the country of Israel from the country of Judah where we had been studying for a number of weeks. And today's passage brings us to the last chapter in the country of Israel. Israel, the northern kingdom, whose capital was in Samaria, is about to be removed. They will be deported by the kingdom of Assyria. They have had 240 years, 19 different kings. And now we come to the last of those kings, the king Hosea. We see that in verses 1 to 6. By way of introduction, I'd like to show you those verses before we get into the message, which is verses 7 to 23. In verse 1, Hosea comes to power. And he will rule for nine years. But notice verse 2. He's a sinner. But not like the other kings. That's not enough in God's eyes. Many people believe that they are Christians because they're not sinning like other people. My question is, are you as righteous as Christ? If you do not have his righteousness, it's not enough. And Hoshea counted himself good enough because he wasn't as bad as. So King Shalmaneser from Assyria comes against him. But Hoshea is a fool in verse 4. Hoshea did not read the prophets as he should have. He should have known You will be deported. Your country will be destroyed unless one thing, complete repentance. Instead, what does he do? In verse 4, Hoshea tries to arrange a conspiracy to overthrow Assyria. That's irrational because Assyria was in a massive kingdom stretching out to the east. And Israel was a very small country. Nevertheless, the most foolish plans come into our minds rather than repent. You'll see a man who's about to lose his wife and children unless he turns from his sin and he'll make up all kinds of plans to hide, to change, to twist without giving up the real sin. We're all irrational apart from the grace of Christ. And then in verse 6, notice that in the ninth year of his reign, the king of Assyria takes Samaria. Samaria was the capital city. Tonight, we're going to study the book of Hosea. Hosea and Hosea are two different men. Hosea lived at this time and preached at this time. 
Well, maybe just a few years before. But Hosea would have known about Hosea. Tonight's message will apply and fit perfectly with this morning's. Hosea was a fool and he loses his capital city and then he loses his entire country. But this country has a long history. You see, right now, we are in the year 725 B.C., before Christ. B.C. counts down. But now, if you move 1,200 years before this king, before Hosea, if you go all the way back to the year 1,000, 920 B.C., you have the call of Abraham. 2,000 years before Jesus Christ came to earth, God Almighty went through the earth and chose one man. His name was Abram. Abram was from a pagan people group in Ur of the Chaldees near Babylon modern-day Iraq. God called Abram and said, I am going to be your God, and I will make an agreement with you, Abraham. Here's the agreement. I will be your God, and you will be my child. And all of your children will be my people. I will reveal myself to you, not to any of the other countries that were alive on the earth at that time. And God promised to Abram that he would give them a unique country, the country that is now called in the newspapers Palestine. That's from the ancient Hebrew word for Philistia. The Philistines in the Bible are the modern day Palestinians. And God promised, I will give that land to you, Abraham, and to your children. And here's the word in Genesis 12. Forever. He promised, I will be your God. And not only that, in Genesis 12, verse 3, God said to Abraham, I will bless all the people in the earth through you. Does anyone know how all the people in the earth were blessed through Abraham's children? Jesus Christ, of course the descendant of Abraham. But we have now gone 1,200 years from that time. We have gone 700 years from the time that Moses wrote five books and delivered them up to the people of Israel. 700 years that those people have had the Ten Commandments and all the laws of Moses 700 years that those people have known the one true God. 700 years that they have had seven different feasts throughout the year to remind them of God. 700 years that they have had the sacrifices to remind them that God requires blood to pay for sin. 
700 years of the law of God and 700 years of rebellion. 700 years that God has sent the Philistines and the Moabites and the Edomites and the Amalekites and the Ammonites to punish Israel. 700 years that God has given them prophets and then judges and then kings. In 700 years, they have neglected and rejected his word. That brings us to the message of today. Ongoing sin produces absolute misery. If you continue on in sin, you will find yourself utterly destroyed. The reason I began teaching through the books of Samuel and Kings is for this reason. Almost everyone who's listening to my voice right now is a first-generation Christian, and many of you do not have a Christian heritage. But these stories of the history of Israel will give us the necessary heritage in Christianity. It will teach us how to feel about sin and law and man and woman and mother and child and husband and wife. These stories will teach us the right way to feel about living and dying. And so today's message is really one of the greatest messages that the pagan world does not have. But we need to put this into the operating system in our brains and in our minds and hearts and souls. And here it is, a pattern of sin, a lifestyle of sin, ongoing sin, it will lead you to unbearable misery. People commonly complain about their lives. People commonly talk about how unhappy they are, how hard their life is, how difficult their life is. You can be sure that a difficult, hard, painful, miserable life <clears throat> comes from a pattern of sin. So we have three points today from our story. The first one is the ongoing sin. Let's see that. Let's see this pattern in verse 7. For so it was, look in your Bibles down there, verse 7. For so it was that the children of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God. That phrase is moving back 700 years. For so it was that the children of Israel had sinned. It's putting the time way back 700 years ago. And the man who's writing this is saying, I want you to think back now to the very beginning of the history. And from verse 7 to verse 19, 
we're going to see a history of those 1,200 years. What does their history look like? Verse 7. They sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt, from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods. Verse 8. They walked in the statutes. Does your Bible say customs? Your Bible is right if it says customs. Practices. Culture. They had walked in the culture, the traditions, the customs, the practices of what group of people? In verse 8. What group of people? No, no, no. Verse 8. Look at I, I need this answer. Make sure. If you're not with me, what's the point of me going on? In verse 8, they walked in the customs of, what's the word there? The nations. The old King James says the heathen, the Gentiles, the pagans. Number one, if you're taking notes, under point one, this is sub point. They were worldly. The Jews, the Israelites, looked out to the nations and followed their customs, their culture, their tradition, their ideas. They were given customs, cultures, traditions by God. And they said, I'm going to put gods on the shelf. And I'm going to pick up the customs of all these people around me. Those groups whom the Lord had cast out from before the children of Israel and of the kings of Israel. Verse 9, the children of Israel did secretly those things that were not right in the sight of the Lord. The Jews had become worldly. They looked to the world for their practices and their customs. And it's not found only here, it's found everywhere. Look in verse 11. There they burnt incense in all the high places. Like who? In verse 11. Like who? Like the nations. Look at verse 15. They rejected the statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and his testimonies which he testified against them. And they followed foolishness or vanity and became vain or foolish. And they went after who? Who did they follow in verse 15? The nations that were all around them. And it's going to say that repeatedly, even again in verse 33 and verse 34. And this is not the first time that the Bible has recorded this. They were called to be what? The people of who? Of God. But instead they were what? Worldly. It is unpopular to preach against the sin of worldliness. And the reason it's unpopular is not because it's not in the Bible. It's because we are worldly. We have followed the customs of the world around us. We fear what they fear. We love what they love. We are entertained with that which they are entertained with. We get a smile from the same things that bring them smiles. 
And it's all through the Old Testament. In fact, the entire book of Leviticus is written so that we would be holy and separate from the other nations around us. Leviticus 20, verse 26. You shall be holy unto me, for I the Lord am holy and have cut you off. Cut you off from other people so that you would be mine. That's repeated in the book of Ezekiel over and over. Who's going to come and prophesy after this story. It's found all through the Old Testament. It's found in the New Testament. In fact, repeatedly in the New Testament. In 2 Corinthians 6 verse 14, he says, Come out from among them and be separate. And then he quotes the Old Testament to show this is not something just in the New Covenant. This has been God's plan the whole way through. 1 Peter quotes the verse from Leviticus. Be holy, for I, the Lord, am holy. 1 Peter verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 16. Over and over in the Bible, the Bible tells us to be separate from the world, different from the world. It goes so far in 1 John as to say this. If you love the world, or even the things in the world, the love of God is not in you. That is a terrifying word to us today. How many people believe that they are Christians, but they love the world and the things in the world? The first sin of these Israelites that this writer goes back and says, for hundreds of years, this has been your pattern. You looked to the heathen, the pagans, the nations around you, and you said, the way they're doing things, that's the way we should do things. But God has his own customs. God has his own practices. He has his own way to raise children. You're not supposed to read Dr. Spock and say, that's the way I'll do it. You're not supposed to solve your depression the way they solve their depression. You're not supposed to deal with divorce and remarriage the way they deal with their divorce and remarriage. You're not supposed to handle your bank account the way they handle their bank account. You're not supposed to have the customs that they have. There are superior customs. They're the customs revealed in the books of Moses. And then built upon for us in the new covenant. And God was explicit. We are not to have the customs and traditions of the world. That's the first sin that fell on, that these people fell into. The second sin is in verse 9. And the children of Israel did secretly those things that were not right against the Lord their God. They built high places in all their cities. From the tower of the watchman to the fenced city. Verse 10. They set up statues and groves in every high hill. And under every green tree. Verse 11. There they burnt incense in all the high places. As did the heathen whom the Lord had carried away from before them. And they worked wicked things to provoke the Lord to anger. Can you summarize those verses? It's in verse 12. They served what? Number two, idolatry. Idolatry has four parts in these verses. Did you see the four parts of idolatry? I numbered them right in the verses. Number one is here in verse nine. 
What's the first thing, the first part of idolatry? Idol worship in those days and in that time involved this. Number one, what was it? They built high places. Do you see that in verse 9? Number two is in verse 10. They set up statues and groves. Groves were places maybe like Stonehenge. I'm not exactly sure what Stonehenge was for, but many historians believe that Stonehenge was a place for ancient religious rituals. A special place built for religious observance. Here, they're building statues. Number three, in verse 11, they burnt incense. That was probably taken from the Old Testament law. So they're taking practices from the Bible and they're using them in their pagan religions. And then the fourth part of idolatry is this. They worked wicked things. Look in verse, 15, verse 17. We'll see what those wicked things are. They caused their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire. Let me go back through and explain each of those four elements of idolatry. Number one, they built high places. Idol worship always wanted to claim the dominant area of the town. They wanted the most prominent place for their religion. They wanted that place for the religion that was most visible. Because everyone knows in their heart, if we're going to have a religion, it deserves to be the greatest thing in our lives. These idolatrous practices began with taking the best pieces of land. Number two, in verse 10, they built statues. The one true religion worships an invisible God. Every other religion, including Islam, focuses on the visible things over the invisible. Christianity says our religion is chiefly, and and at first, it is invisible. Our God is invisible. He is a spirit. And the great thing in life is to prepare your own spirit. Islam talks about how they have no idols. But in reality, their focus is on visible earthly things like every other religion. Look at Catholicism. Why does the Pope wear a high hat? The answer is simple. Their religion is focusing on what can be seen. Why do the religions of the world all want to build the most beautiful structures? Because they have nothing spiritual to offer. The one true religion builds up a spiritual temple. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 15. Number three, this element of idolatry. They burnt incense. Where did they get the incense burning from? Where did they learn that from? Tell me. From the Old Testament law. Idolatry always loves to take something that's true and mix it with something demonic. So all false religion says, I'm going to take a little bit of truth and mix it in with error. Number four, 
They worked wicked things. What are those wicked things that they worked? Verse 17, they killed their children. Only two kings are ever listed of Israel. Only two kings of Israel were ever listed as burning their children. Those two kings, Ahaz and Manasseh, those are the only two that were recorded as having burnt their children. But we know the practice must have been widespread. Because it says right there in verse 17, they caused their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire. They used divination and enchantments. Jeremiah and Ezekiel say that judgment is coming on Israel because they burnt their children. This is all part of idolatry. Idolatry twists the natural affections that God has put in the heart of man. God has made it so that mothers love their children. And idolatry makes it so that women want to murder their children with abortion. So that fathers want to throw away their children for some other purpose. What's the third sin? It's listed in verse 13. Yet the Lord testified against Israel and against Judah by all the prophets and by all the seers saying... Turn you from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes according to all the law which I commanded your fathers and which I sent down to you by my servants, the prophets. Notice how many times he mentions the prophets, the servants. In verse 13, God gave Israel something he did not give. To the rest of the world. What did God give to Israel. That he did not give to the rest of the world. He gave them. Men. Who would tell the truth. If you have been given. A man. Who tells the truth. You have been given a great gift. That you could not purchase if you gathered up all your salary for the entire year and the whole decade. You could not pay enough to convince God to give you a man to speak the truth to you. But these Jews ignored them. That's sin number three. They ignored their teachers. I wonder... How many of us have been given a godly pastor? And you might come to church to listen, but when he tells you something that you don't quite agree with, you don't take time to search the Bible to even see if it's true. It's understandable. If your pastor preaches and on some minor point you're studying and you think, well, I've studied the scripture very carefully and I've done this and on this minor point, perhaps my pastor is just a man and we disagree. But on the major points, on devotion to Christ, your pastor is preaching to you and you know it's in the Bible and you feel guilty when he's preaching. I need, yeah, well, I really should. I, I need to change. I'll get around to that. And you, you don't deal with that sin. 
That's, that's one of the sins for which God brought miserable failure. Unbearable misery to these people. Neglecting the light of a godly pastor or preacher or prophet is absolute foolishness. We are not talking, of course, about the whims of a man. We are not talking about the foolish uh, babblings of false teachers and false prophets who tell you you have to live here, you have to move there, you have to stand under my umbrella of authority. No, we're talking about a godly pastor who says, turn from your sin and turn to Christ. The Bible is explicit. God is speaking. And you say, well, I understand that the Bible does say that. And I know there's a verse about that. There's another verse. And I understand, but I'll deal with that later. That kind of attitude is the precursor to unbearable misery. Sin number four. Verse 15. They rejected his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and his testimonies, which he testified against them. Notice that. Statutes, covenant, testimonies. Give me another word for that. All three of those, statutes, covenant, testimonies. In verse 13, we saw the words uh, commandments, statutes, law. What word can we summarize all those terms with? The Bible or God's word. Sin number four of these people, they rejected God's word. Let me ask you, will you you open your heart and let me speak right into your soul right now? Is there something in the Bible that you know it clearly says and you do not like it? Is there something you know the Bible says it and honestly it bothers you? You would not say it in public. You wouldn't say it in front of the pastor. You wouldn't tell people, or maybe you would sometimes, if you see that person also hates it. But there's something in the Bible. I could give you examples, but you know them. The Bible says it clearly. It might say it two times or four times or five, or it might say it 50 times. It might have to do with the fire of hell. It might have to do with election. It might have to do with the way God has ordered the home. It might have to do with the way God rules the world. It might have to do with his providence or his revelation. It might have to do with the way he has ordered the church. But there's a verse in the Bible, and when you come to it, you honestly say, I wish that verse wasn't there. Or in the words of Charles Simeon, the great Anglican preacher who preached the five solas. Charles Simeon said once to his friend in a letter, he said, we must guard ourselves from ever thinking that if we were looking over the Apostle Paul's shoulder, we would have said to him, no, no, you don't need to write that. Have you ever felt that way? 
That is a sin. It does not come from God. These people were involved with that sin because they rejected God's word. And let me just be very plain. Perhaps you have for 10 or 20 or 30 years held this idea. There's something in the Bible. I don't like it. I call on you as a loving Christian, as a man called by God to speak as the mouthpiece of God, 1 Peter 4 verse 10. I call you today to repent of that. To say before God today, oh God, forgive me. There is this verse and I haven't liked it. And starting with today, the 6th of December, 2020, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw down that doubt and I'm going to take it. And if it changes something in my life, I'm just going to have to deal with that change. But I'm going to take the Bible. Any other path is the path to unbearable misery. These are the sins that led Israel into destruction. Look at verse 18. Therefore. Do you all see that word? What's the first word of verse 18? Therefore. The Lord was very angry with Israel. Wait a minute. Why was the Lord very angry? Because of those four sins. Do you see that word, therefore? It's connecting it back to all of those sins that came before. What are the four sins? The first one was worldliness. The second one was idolatry. The third one was ignoring teachers or preachers. The fourth one was what? Rejecting the Bible. Because of these sins, how did God feel Toward the Israelites. In verse 18. Tell me. How did God feel? What's the word written in verse 18? Not just angry. But very angry. With whom? With his own people. I warn you today as a pastor. Called by God to tell you. He will be very angry with the people who make a pattern of those sins. You cannot go. You cannot go on without answering for this. You cannot go on without having to deal with this. Even though these sins overlap, you might say, I'm not involved in idolatry. If you are involved in rejecting God's word, then somewhere or other there's some idolatry in your life. Well, I'm not ignoring the pastor. Well, if you're worldly, then some way or other, there is that sin. These sins overlap completely. How so? Because if you have a godly pastor, he will preach against worldliness. He will preach against idolatry. He will preach against rejecting the Bible. If, you're, if you have a godly pastor and you are obeying him, all those other sins will be cleared up. Okay, take idolatry. If you are really free from idols, then God alone is your God. And if he is your God, then you will love his word. You won't reject the Bible. If God alone is your God, you won't be worldly. Do you see, if you, if you throw down sin number two, then you throw down all of them. If you throw down sin number one, you throw down all of them. But sins have a way of going together, just like mud on a rainy day tends to stain everything. No matter how carefully I seem to walk on these Lord's days, 
I go to church and I think, oh, it won't. And then somehow it's not only on my shoes, but on my socks. Not only on my socks, but on my pants. Somehow I got here on my sleeve. How did that happen? Sins run together and connect in a diabolical path leading down to absolute destruction. Let me bring out four points here about their failure before moving to the conclusion. Notice that they failed in the main point of religion. They did not fail in a small point, but in the main point. They left God. They chose the world over God. They hated the people who loved God the most. They had the Bible when no one else had the Bible, and it sat in the corner. They really didn't like it. And if they read it, it's only because the pastor kept pushing them. They failed in the main point, not in some small point. Friends, there are many points about which good Christians disagree. Should women wear hats at church? Should we baptize babies or should we only immerse adults? Is Jesus coming back before a great revival or after a great revival? Should we meet on Sunday or can we meet any day of the week? Can we play sports on a Sunday if we've already worshipped with God's people? There are many things that godly Christians can disagree with. Some Christians believe it's a sin to have insurance. Some Christians believe it's a sin not to have insurance. Some Christians believe it's a sin to send your children to the public school. And some people believe it's a sin not to send your children to the public school. We can disagree on a good many things. But on the main point, you can't miss it. These people miss the main point. Number two, they failed even though they were warned and told in advance. That comes from verse 13 with the prophets. They were warned. They were told over and over. If you stand before God, I pray that my hands will be clean. I told you. I faithfully explained the Bible. I warned you. If the Bible said it, I said it. And if it was uncomfortable, I hope I still said it. And if you didn't like it, I hope I still said it. They were warned from Deuteronomy 31, verse 16. He told them in Deuteronomy 31, verse 16, he says these words, you will go whoring after other gods. He prophesied, this is what's going to happen because of your sin. I know it's going to happen. You're going to do that. And they did that. That was not one of those prophecies where God says, This will happen and I decree it. He was predicting it as if knowing the nature of men, they love their sin. Deuteronomy 31 verse 16, 700 years in advance. Number three, they failed repeatedly under every circumstance. Number four, they failed even while telling themselves they were doing just fine. That's the most terrifying They failed miserably the whole time convinced that they were doing 
okay. Why is that a great danger? Because of all the dangers, if you don't see that you're doing wrong, you will sleep your way into hell. And some of you are here listening to me right now and you were woken up even this year. And you thank God for that. And I've heard you thank God that he woke you up. Brother Marius, God brought pain into your life to wake you up so that 56 years, though you were sleeping, you're awake. Praise God that he woke you up after 56 years. These people were failing even while telling themselves we're doing fine. And so we close in verses 20 to 23 with the unbearable misery. Look at verse 20. The Lord rejected. What did the Lord do? Rejected all the seed of Israel. Number, th- number two, what did the Lord do? Your Bible might say afflicted or your Bible might say humiliated. Do you see that word? Does your Bible say afflicted? It's the same word where, that is translated as humble. God humbled them. He humiliated them. He put them low. Number one, he rejects them. Number two, he afflicts them. What's the third thing he does? God delivered them into the hand of their enemies. You see that word deliver, it's the word for salvation. And you say, oh, God saved them? No, he delivered them over to their enemies. Number four, what does God do at the end of verse 20? Tell me, look in your Bibles at verse 20. What's the last one? He throws them out of his sight. Number five is in verse 21. He rent Israel. He tore Israel. He cut off Israel from the house of David. Five verbs that God did. Let me remind you of this. Do you know this verse? If you don't know this, you need to know this verse. 1 Corinthians 10. Oh, I've just forgotten the verse number. I think it's verse 3. I think it's verse 3. These things were written for your examples. The Old Testament is written to be an example for you. Verse 6. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6. But it's listed twice. Is it verse 6 and verse 3? These things were listed as your examples. We have the Old Testament stories because they are examples for us. That means the five things that God did to Israel, we are supposed to learn from. He rejected them. He humiliated them. He delivered them to their enemies. He cast them out of his sight. And he cut them off from the house of David. And God will do that to all people who make a pattern of going on in sin. If you go on in those four sins, he will be very angry. You will fail not in the small point, but in the major point. You will deceive yourselves and he will do those five things to you. We have this as an example for us. And this is exactly what the Apostle John teaches in 1 John 3, verses 6 through 10. 
When he says, he that is born of God does not keep on sinning. He does not sin. There's not a pattern of sin. Yes, we might fall in sin once when when we get up and repent. But the man who lives in his sin, these Jews lived in sin for 700 years. And God's patience came to an end. And so they lost their land in verse 23 until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight as he had said by all his servants, the prophets. So was Israel carried away out of their own land. They lost their land. And when they lost their land, what else did they lose? They lost their homes. Imagine how you would feel if you lost the privilege of living in your country. Number two, because of that, your home was destroyed and given to someone else. Number three, they made you change your language like they did when the English took control from the Afrikaners and they said, you can't speak Afrikaans. If you speak Afrikaans, you wear a dunce hat in the corner. They said, we're going to root out Afrikaans. This will be an English colony. What can you do to destroy a people more than take away their language, which is what the Assyrian Empire did. We're going to see next week in verse 24, the Assyrians even brought four different language groups into Israel to completely destroy the Hebrew language. And there's no way that Hebrew could be spoken today if God providentially did not produce it. But that's come, next, come back next week. God destroyed their language God destroyed their culture. And he even gave them up to pagans to worship idols. And that was all prophesied in Deuteronomy 28. Where he said over and over in Deuteronomy 28. 700 years earlier. I'm going to give you up. To be taken out of your land. I'm going to give you up to another nation. And they now have unbearable misery the country that had been the most patriotic. I close with this. It is very wise for us to meditate on tragedies so that we can learn from history. If we don't study history, we will make the same mistakes that they did. That's why God is the first historian, not, what is it, uh, Thucydides? It's God who's the first historian. He recorded history so that we would not make the same mistakes. This is the reason we have this historical account today. To avoid these terrible dangers. Let's close our eyes.